All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one on a chair somewhere within reach. Definitely grab one and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans in the New Testament is your turn in there. Welcome, everyone. Good to see you all. Thank you for joining us, especially those of you who are newer. Good to have you with us for worship this morning as we really continue and uh, ascend in our time of worship through the hearing and the study of the the inerrant Word of God. We're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, an excellent, excellent book, a book that uh, Christians in the church have over the centuries have recognized as the most important book of the Bible. If you could say that there was one, I suppose this would be it, and therefore the most important piece of literature in existence. Romans chapter 5, we're just going verse by verse, starting uh, at verse at verse 1, chapter 1, and we find ourselves in chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 18, and the title of this morning's message is Grace Abounding. It's sort of the uh, conclusion on this long, incredible section on justification. Justification. Well, as we... Most of us, anyhow, if you live here, you're uh, a Wyoming person, you're used to mountains, you like mountains. If you don't, you probably have a hard time living here. But as we think about mountains, the Himalayas have always uh, intrigued interest. The Himalayan mountain range in Asia. Uh, The Himalayans, they're the largest mountain range in the world. And they sort of stretch, they stretch about 1,500 miles from kind of southwestern China across the border there, India and Nepal. They start on the, the largest of them is kind of above the Indus River Valley there and heads east. There are more than 100 peaks in the Himalayas that are over 7,000 meters. That's 23,600 feet. That's big. Uh, to put it in perspective, the Grand Teton, that's also big, is 13,775. So there are over 100 peaks that are over 10,000 feet bigger than the Grand. Of course, the tallest being uh, Mount Everest, which is 29,031 feet. Very large, the top of the Earth. However, Here's the thing about the Himalayas. As explorers finally were able to pull themselves up into these gargantuan mountains, uh, they discovered something interesting. uh, That climbers and mountaineers have found over and over and again. They realized, whoa, We're not the first ones on these peaks. What else had been up there before them? And what does that have to do with our next passage in Romans 5, 18 to 21? We'll get to that in a minute, maybe more than a minute. Follow along as I read Romans 5. 
just for some context and to set the scene, I'll start in verse 12 and read to verse 21. Romans 5, the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of the living God. Beloved, this is God's word. Not opinion, not suggestion, not one piece of literature alongside another. But the only piece of literature, the only book that stands above all others in judgment of them. The word of God. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed righteous. Verse 20. Now the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reading of God's word. This ends, this section, this section we're studying ends, Romans 5, and also a major section, it's a major juncture in the book of Romans. Sometimes those topic divisions follow the, 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 the verse and chapter delineations, which were brought in over a thousand years after God gave his text, sometimes they don't. We follow kind of the topical, what's happening, the logical junctures. So recall that we started out the book. The thesis of the book was in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where Paul, he gives an introduction and says, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, gospel meaning good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, everybody in other words. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it's written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So that's the big idea, declaration of Romans. 
That we're not ashamed of this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, because through it, God reveals his righteousness. And then from verse 18 from chapter 1 to verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul goes on a, an unrushed and unflattering and realistic declaration of the condition of the human race, in which, briefly, we spent a long time in that section, about a year, in which he's, in effect, saying, God is saying, it's very important that the human race, in order to think according to reality and truth, understands themselves as God sees them as they are, as we are. Not having this righteousness that he said in verse 17 of chapter 1, that God reveals. What's that? We'll talk about that in a minute. In other words, that the, the, the human race really needs the gospel and really needs this thing that he'll talk about in verse 21 of chapter 3 to the, to the end of chapter 5 called justification, the most important word in the Christian faith. And the whole, that whole section, 118 to 320, is you need, we all need Jesus badly. The need of a righteousness outside of ourselves because we have no righteousness. Righteousness just meaning like a, a moral resume before God measured by God's bar, not our own subjective one where we compare ourselves to the Hitlers and Stalins of the world. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, he turns that corner and it's been great news ever since then. That this righteousness that he said in verse 17 of chapter 1 that's revealed from God, God provides it. The righteousness that is required for a human being to stand right before God, to go to heaven, to safely enter eternity and exit this life, that God gives it as a gift. It's not attained through earning. It's not earned by moral performance. It could never be. We fall too far short. In effect, as we're seeing in chapter 5, we're born in Adam God provides this righteousness through the person and work of Jesus Christ in justification, this word that means to declare righteous, where God, motivated by his mercy for all who fall in surrendered faith on Jesus Christ, God does this thing called double imputation that we've been talking about for a long time. Very important phrase to understand, double imputation, where at the cross... The instant you put faith in God, this is not gradual, this is instant, it is not earned, it is given. It's not through works, it's by his grace. The instant you put faith in Christ, he imputes or credits all of your sins, even the ones you have not yet committed, to Jesus, such that they're wiped away in his substitutionary atoning death. That's part one of imputation. That gets us back up to neutral. But we still need that righteousness that conforms to God's law, his moral spiritual requirements for the human race, without which you'll never enter heaven. And you can't earn it either. And so what he does is that very instant, as well as imputing our sins to Christ, he imputes the righteousness, the life, the perfection, the crisp, blazing, moral pristineness and holiness of Jesus' life to you. To the sinner. And that is outrageous grace. It's so outrageous, in fact, that Paul has to spend all of chapter 6, we'll get there in the new year, Lord willing, to say this is an antinomianism. In other words, people will be saying, well, that will just, if you preach a gospel like that, that's just going to encourage people to say, great, I have this fire insurance, I can go and live however I want. 
And Paul will say no. But in the meantime, back to where we are. In chapter 5, verse 12 to 14, we read it. He's dealing with this issue of through one man, sin entered to the world, entered into the world. And that's Adam, a first literal human being in a literal garden of Eden, just after a literal six-day creation. Um, and we saw that if you deny a literal human Adam, oh, maybe three messages ago, there are just catastrophic implications of that. But in the meantime, he's saying, he's making this comparison between Adam and Jesus. As Adam did something, the first human being, that negatively impacted the human race, Jesus did this one act, his substitutionary work, that very much positively influenced and impacted those who he represents who put faith in him. And so we saw that there were those, we did a message a couple weeks ago, those three words we looked at, representation, imputation, and regeneration. That Paul is saying that really God deals with the human race through two individuals, Adam and Christ. Everybody, regardless of your spiritual, religious, whatever persuasion, you're in one of those two lines. You're in one of those two races. There are only, there is one race, really, the, the human race and Adam. But you're represented by one of those individuals. Adam and Christ are representatives of two lines of humanity. Adam represents fallen humanity. Everyone born, every human born ever comes from his line. And then those who put faith in Christ are represented by Jesus. And so Paul has said, really, there's two categories of humans. Those in Adam, those in Christ, the saved, the unsaved. Those in darkness, those in light. Those who have rejected Christ and those who have received him. Those who are condemned in sin, those who are righteous in Jesus Christ. Those who stiff-arm Christ and those who have bowed to him. Under the rule of sin or under the rule of Jesus. Spiritually dead in sin or spiritually alive. Everybody falls into one of those two lines. Absolutely. What a statement. What a fact. What a reality. Which one are you? Cursed in Adam or having been reborn spiritually in Christ. And so we get to this final section where he's been saying through Adam... We're all condemned, but if you put faith in him through Christ, we're justified. This massive section on justification, and we come to verse 18 to 21, and really, verse 18 to 21 is pretty simple. Paul is wrapping up his discussion on justification by faith. Please don't put your head on the pillow tonight. Please don't even leave this building this morning without understanding clearly what justification by faith alone and Christ alone means. If it hasn't been clear, come speak to me, speak to someone else afterwards. So, so important. Through Adam, there is condemnation, but through Jesus Christ, there's justification. Our greatest need met, which we cannot meet on our own. So, verse 18 to 21, he's concluding, he's summarizing, he's kind of wrapping up. He's going to say just to pepper the text with a couple more things, some final things to remember about justification. Before, in chapter 6, verse 1, we, we turn the page to this conversation on sanctification. And he'll say there's no such thing as sanctification, justification without sanctification. Okay? So four summaries on justification we'll see in verse 18 to 21. Four summaries. 
four wrapping up statements, summaries on justification. Make sure, beloved, that we understand crisply and truly what justification by faith alone and Christ alone means. Number one, very simply, this final summary is about from condemnation to justification. In verse 18, from condemnation to justification. Number one, from condemnation to justification. Verse 18. So then, look at the text. So then, it's that statement indicating a summary. He's kind of, let's, let's lasso kind of everything we've said and talk about it maybe in a little bit different way. Repetition, the apostle knows, is a, a very skilled uh, teacher, is essential to learning. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. So here's that comparison again. Through one transgression, and he's kind of wrapping up what he said in verse 12 to 17. Through one's transgression, transgression means it means a deviation, an intentional deviation from a set path. It's speaking what the literal Adam did. Adam, we know it's referring to him. We saw that in verse 14 and on. At the beginning of creation, the dawn of history, this literal guy, Adam, the first guy, God said, look, I've outfitted the world's with everything you need, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he rebels and does. And through that one transgression, intentional deviation, he is brought, notice the word, condemnation to all men. Remember, Adam represents, God, God treats him like a, he's a representative of all who would come through him. He's a representative. Physically, biologically, every human being comes from him. So he represents us. And so from, because of his transgression, notice verse 18, we are condemned. There is condemnation. Even though we weren't there physically participating in that. That's a woe verse. No guy, no man would sit down and write that. Yeah, that's a, huh. And we've studied this in detail. If you haven't been with us since chapter uh, 5, verse 12, please get, get those messages. But Adam's guilt becomes ours. His condemnation becomes ours. This idea of representation, and we're familiar with this. We've observed in like our government, representative forms of government, one individual who represents a people, when they act, they do something that affects the rest of the people as it was with Adam and as it will be with Christ. Lest we cry that that's not fair, this sobering reality, we, under, we can understand a few things and be reminded, but number one, we wouldn't have done any better than Adam. You know, so let's not peacock ourselves too much about our morality. We, we, would have, we would have failed and tapped out before he did. Second, we can't really complain about it because the polar opposite of this representation as we've been studying, and you saw at the end of verse 18, is how Christ represents us, not into condemnation, but justification. And salvation, though we didn't participate in his actions like we didn't in Adam's. So there's great grace there. And it, similarly, it's kind of not fair 
that we get his justification and his righteousness, but in a really good way, and none of us cries foul about that. We're saved through his works. Further, we're not God. We don't make the rules here, and forth, we've all sinned anyway, so we're all still guilty. And praise God, though, that the verse doesn't end there. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Beloved, we're condemned in Adam. Before you, before you raise your high hand at God, you're already condemned. The whole human race is. That's fact. Absolute fact. Now, we'll, our nature will manifest itself later as we don't have to be taught. But even so, thank God for that, even so, verse 18, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. It's not the end of the story. Condemnation isn't the end of the book. Christmas happened. Just as a literal Adam, a human, was essential, a literal human being, the God-man Christ, was essential. The incarnation, we call it. Through his one act of righteousness, there is this parallel. But last week we studied in verse 15 to 17, though there's a parallel, there's a comparison in their actions, Adam plunging us into condemnation, Christ into justification, the, the, the good that Christ does is far more, we saw in verse 15 to 17. It's far greater than the bad that Adam did. They're, they're parallel, but they're not symmetrical in that sense. Hallelujah. Through his one act of righteousness, his saving work, there resulted, the result of this, justification of life to all men. And I just want to spend a couple quick minutes summarizing and revisiting the meaning of justification so we're absolutely clear on this because the text isn't going to talk much more about it after chapter 5. It's going to assume as we have like, you know, 6 to 16 in Romans, it's going to assume we get this. We got it dialed. It's nailed. We understand it. We're there. A couple things. Let me just, a couple quick things about def justification. Number one, the definition, to declare, not progressively make. To declare, not progressively make righteous. It is instantaneous, not progressive, beloved. And that's the difference between heaven and hell. This is what the Protestant Reformation was about in part. Is justification progressive or is it instantaneous? It's instantaneous. It means to declare righteous, the gavel of a judge coming down from that previously condemned criminal and that instant by the judge from the high courts declaring him though previously guilty, now righteous. It's instantaneous. Instantly, the, per the, the moment you put faith in Christ, there resulted justification of life. Also, second, it's given by Christ and his works, not attained through ours. It's given by Christ and his works, not attained through ours. This is just a death blow to the idea of a works-based righteousness. All false religions in the world, which is, every, which is every faith outside of biblical Christianity, they, have, they are all under the category in one way or another of works-based righteousness. In other words, I can be awesome enough in myself. I can be a moral hero. I have enough altruistic finesse in me to get to heaven and climb my way to God. No. No, you do not. 
And thankfully, justification is by, it's given by the works of Christ. You look there, you see it in the text, verse 18. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That one act of righteousness, of course, has been and is referring to Jesus. Notice it does not say in verse 18, through our act of righteousness, nor through your works of righteousness, the result of justification. It doesn't say that. Do you see that? It does not say it. And neither does it say, well, you helped in attaining your righteousness of justification by the good stuff you would do one day. We do not participate in the most important thing that we need, our greatest need. We, we participate nothing in it except our sin. Christ, the God-man, and his, work, his works alone set up, sculpt, architect, construct, build of steel and construct the works by which we are justified. We didn't physically participate in Adam's sin, which renders us condemned, right? And so by parallel... None of us would dare claim we participated in Christ's works by which the gavel comes down and we are declared righteous. And therefore, that's such a pillow because in our right standing with God day to day does not hinge on how you're doing. And you're not always doing well, like me. Similarly, third, justification comes about through Christ's representation of us. It is through Christ's representation of us, not our works. Christ's representation of us. Again, this is catastrophic. Romans 5.12-21 to 21 is catastrophic to some of our friends who are caught up in workspace righteousness, in watchtowerism, Romanism, Joseph Smithism, and, 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 and many others, Hinduism, Islam, uh, Rastafarianism, all of these are works-based righteousness. This argument is catastrophic to, to those ideas, and we, we, we need to share them gently in love, because how is, how is, the text is arguing in Will in verse 19, how does right standing with God come about? This, this representative work, represent, representation by imputation. Christ representing us and our, our, our sin imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. He represents us, just like Adam represented us catastrophically in the garden. And so if, if the only way to be right with God and go to heaven is through representation and imputation, then that is, that is absolutely the photo negative of works. Representation is you not doing it. But the thing being done by someone else having consequences upon you. And that's the whole argument that God is making here through the pen of Paul. Adam represents us, condemnation. Christ represents those who by childlike faith fall on him and they are saved. Justification. Justification, by the way, fourth, is God's legal declaration of us. It's his legal declaration of us, absolutely. It's not our subjective opinion of ourselves. Provided, again, we put faith in Christ. Faith is, is the contingency. It's God's legal declaration 
of us, not our subjective opinion. Once you, once you are justified by faith in Christ, it doesn't matter how you're feeling or doing day to day. Because God has already forensically, he the judge of all the earth, Genesis 18, 25, has already brought the hammer down and said what you are. Even though we'll have, we'll struggle. And it'll be bumpy. And Paul's going to say, I'm a wretched man. The apostle Paul will say that after he's saved later in Romans 7. But the, 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 the gavel has already come down by the judge of all the earth. Praise God. It's his legal declaration of us, regardless of how we feel. And number five, justification. It's permanent. It's not reversible. Justification is permanent, beloved. Not reversible. And this is where we have to lovingly have a, 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 a come-to-Jesus discussion with our semi-Pelagian friends and our Arminian friends. Our Phineast friends and, and, and whatnot. This is permanent. Justification is permanent. God's not going to revoke that and say, oh, well, you didn't, do, you didn't do good enough today, so sorry. <laughs> Reverse, gavel off the, the bench. You're unjustified. That will never happen. Why? Why can that not happen? We need to know this big time. Why is that irreversible? In other words, there's no such thing as, well, I once was a Christian, but now I'm not. No, you never were, 1 John 2.19. Justified is irreversible. Why? Because upon what does justification or whom does it depend? Christ, right? The double imputation is upon him. His substitutionary death because of imputing our sins to him, his life that he already lived flawlessly under the law, imputed to those who have put faith in him. Therefore, that can't be reversed any more than history can be reversed and his life can be undone and his death can be undone and his resurrection can be undone. So justification is permanent. Received by faith as a gift and it resulted to all men. Now this phrase, look there at the end of verse 18. This phrase, justification of life to all men, has caused some, understandably, to trip up a little bit. What's that saying? Is that saying that everybody, everybody receives justification? Is that what that's saying? If it does, justification, meaning that declaration of righteousness, irreversible, permanent upon the works of Christ, that means that everybody is saved. That means everyone born is going to heaven. Is that what that's saying at the end of verse 18? No, it can't be. Right? A, a, a little revisit of hermeneutics here. The art and science of biblical interpretation. The first rule of hermeneutics is surrender. Is putting ourselves under the text, not above it. That's, that's law number one. When you're reading a document, hermeneutics, the art and science of coming to the meaning of the text. Surrender. By the way, when we're looking to the meaning of a text... Don't get, don't get fooled by your, your friend's discussion. Well, that's your interpretation, but I have mine. That, that's a logical fallacy. It, it's the first rule of logic, the law of non-contradiction. There's no such thing as your interpretation, my interpretation. Right? Because who does the text originate from? God. So whose interpretation is there? God. There's only God's interpretation. So when we come to a text, we're looking for the single meaning of it, which is God's interpretation. You don't have an interpretation. And that's arrogant of us to think that we would. 
It's what the text means. So we come under it, number one, humility. Number two, we say, what can it not mean? As far as justification of life to all men, what can that not mean? It can't mean. Everybody, goes, everybody is justified because the contingency of justification is faith and has everyone surrenderedly put faith in Christ? No. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Matthew 7, 23 and 24, Jesus says in the end, I mean, there's going to be a ton of people in those sections, a ton of people who, have, who, who, who reject Christ. In fact, most. Therefore, the end of verse 18, when it says all men, it cannot be referring to everyone born going to heaven. So the other rule of hermeneutics is, well, what's the context? What's the context of the passage? The context of the passage is representation by imputation. Adam, Christ. There are two categories set up. The all men and Adam are who? All Adam represents everybody born, all condemned, every one of us. The all men and the, all men and the next all men at the end of verse 18, who's that? All men represented by whom? Christ. Who are all men represented by Christ? Everyone saved, everyone who puts faith in Christ. Right? Makes sense? So there's no problem, there's no difficulty with this text at all. So it's saying, all represented by Christ, they are justified. Meaning Christ saves comprehensively. He's not leaving anybody out who puts faith in him. All who come to me, he says in John 6, I'll not turn any of them away. Praise God for that. Point being, all who put faith in Christ go from condemnation to justification without exception. Number two. And these last uh, three points will be a, bit, a little bit shorter. But number two, Christ's obedience and justification. Number two, Christ's obedience and justification. Verse 19 brings out Christ's obedience in justification. Just what a, what a great verse this is. I was tempted to, to just do the whole sermon on this verse, but alas. Look at verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. Your translation might say made. The Greek word means designated or appointed. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed righteous. So here's the final parallel between Adam and Christ. And, and this idea of representation through imputation. Adam's sin is called disobedience. That word there, the, the Greek word, it's an interesting word. It has the, the root word hear in it. Like, I hear you. It means to, to hear, but to refuse and to rebel. Adam heard what God said in Genesis 2. But when Genesis 3 comes around, he says, nah. No. That's what sin is, to hear and to rebel, in part. And then it says, the many, your translation again might say, were made, were made sinners. And that, that Greek word there, made, that might be in your translation, it's not made as in, you know, it took, as in two, in two to three years, Michelangelo made the statue David. 
it's the idea that the, the, the board appointed that guy, made that guy VP. A single act. An instantaneous designation. Through Adam's disobedience, the whole human race, we are appointed or designated sinners. Just so unflattering, so sobering. Again, before we rebel, that's the, that's the situation. And th- by the way, the degree to which we get and grasp and come under Romans 5, 12 to 21, you get, that, you get this passage right, you're going to be right on a hundred other things in the biblical faith. Representation, imputation, regeneration. You reject Romans 5, 12 to 21 and what it's saying here about this on representation, you're going to be wrong about a hundred other things as it, as it pertains to the faith and reality and life and death and sin and, and, and salvation. So our greatest unity as the human race is sinners through one act of disobedience. So, so sobering. But even so, there's an even so there. That's not the end of the story. Again, through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed, designated, not gradually made, instantly designated, those who put faith in Christ, as righteous. It's another way to say justification. Now, so much happening here. Uh, the, the obedience of Christ, beloved, is, is reason to fall down and praise God for an eternity. Christ's life was consumed with one thing. Not thinking of you and me, though he did, John 17 says, but with obedience to his Father. John Chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, I've come down to not do what I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want, but to come under my Father and his word. Jesus was a man under authority, though being God. And Christ's obedience is the only key that can unlock the gates to heaven for a human being, unless you're God. If you're God then you don't need Christ's obedience. But if you're not God, you need him to obey. Now, as the church has, has observed this and thought about this over the centuries, uh, we, we think of his obedience in two categories. In two categories, his active obedience and his passive obedience. And it's super important to understand these. His active obedience and his passive obedience. The active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Both involve submission. Both are essential to salvation. But his active is the prerequisite for his passive. And I just want to pull over and park and and worship as we contemplate this for a minute. This is Christ's jaw-dropping obedience is a topic worthy of our meditation this Christmas season. He comes to the manger not to sit there with a halo and angels and gold and and frankincense and myrrh, but to grow up to obey. His active obedience means his flawless obedience to God's commands, to the commandments, to God's law. His, His blood, his sweat, his tears in thought, word, and deed every second to think words that were worthy of, of God's greatness. To have motivations that were worthy of God's greatness. 
to say things, to do things, to respond to people in a way that was worthy of God's glory and God's love and God's greatness. He always did this. This is why he came. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent his, forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Sometimes people have asked, okay, so like the most important thing that Jesus did is die on the cross and rise from the grave. Why didn't he just come down for a weekend then? Why didn't he just do like a weekend warrior trip from heaven? Come down Friday, die on the cross, rise Sunday, and then bust it back up there. What, why did he, why the manger? Why this whole life? Hey, the, the, the question, you don't understand what salvation requires if you ask that at all. How lost we are, how dead we are. Or what, you know, why couldn't we just have like some self-proclaimed guru, spiritual guru from history step up and say, hey, I'm a decent guy. I'm pretty altruistic. I've, you know, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I, I, I give to charity. How about if I go up on the cross and die for sinners? It's not that simple. For a single person to be saved, to stand righteous in heaven before God, you need justification. For justification to happen, we need an individual whose life is astronomically flawless, who is blazingly perfect, matching God's bar at every moment, always loving people perfectly, always responding to people perfectly always having the purest motivations for the glory of God in everything you say. Because in justification, you need two things, right? This highlights Christ's obedience. You need, what do you need in justification? Someone to whom our sins can be imputed and can serve as a trash dump for our sins, and that someone must be without sin themselves. Righteous. And the other thing you need is someone whose life is perfectly righteous so that their righteousness can be imputed to you. So, so no, you, you, couldn't have, you couldn't have just like a weekend trip or some other goofy guru, impersonator. That, that's, that's not going to cut it. God is too holy. This is why God himself had to come. Jesus did what Adam should, what he should have done, and what we radically failed to do. His active obedience is every day, his feet hitting the floor. As Isaiah chapter 50 says, I have the ear of a disciple. I'm ready to listen to you, Father. When my feet hit the floor, Father, Jesus thought every day, I'm coming under you. I'm submitting to your word not my feelings, not what I think is better, not evaluating it by my pragmatic, man-centered wisdom, and well, I'm going to kind of slither out of this situation and slither into this one. Jesus said, I'm submitting every day to you. Every second. It's incredible. And by the way, God the Father, when it came to Jesus' incarnation, chucks any notion of nepotism, doesn't he? He chucks out any notion of nepotism. Jesus doesn't get a pass because he's the son. Now, you're going you're gonna to take on full humanity and by the means of grace, not a magic trick, by daily Bible reading, prayer, regularly corporate gathering, plugging in, you're going to have to fight sin and overcome temptation just like every other guy. 
It's the mystery of the incarnation. That's his act of obedience. Which qualified him for what's called, theologians have understood as his passive obedience. His passive obedience is his obedience of submission at the cross. He can't have and perform his passive obedience. It's passive not in the sense that he didn't do anything, but passive in the sense it was the ultimate coming under, beloved. It was the ultimate act of submission. Sometimes when we're sitting in counseling and we're talking to couples and talking to wives about the very difficult subject in Ephesians 5, to 24, of submission... And it's like, oh, it's hard to submit to a guy. And it's like, I'm sure it is. But I assure you, I assure you, you will never, you will never, ever, ever have to submit to your husband as much as Jesus submitted in his passive obedience. Ever. And bearing the wrath of God. This is his passive obedience. His whole life of active obedience sets him up for this. Every day obeying the law when he didn't feel like it. When he was being hammered by wicked people around him, constantly misunderstanding him. All of that sets him up for his passive obedience. Where he submits under the wrath of God and in the Garden of Eden says, Not what I want, Father, but what you want. Is that what you say every day when your feet hit the floor? Father, no matter what happens today, not what I want, but what your word says, I'll, I'm going to do that by your grace. Is that how I hit the floor every day? His passive obedience is he surrendered under the wrath of God. What would take you and eternity and me, eternity and hell to endure, just came thundering on Jesus in his passive obedience. That's the only way for you to get to heaven and me people of the earth walk around impressed with their morality, their altruism, making monuments to themselves, when in reality all of us are monsters in our thoughts and behind closed doors. We're monsters compared to Jesus. And Jesus, in the, in the meantime, has this active and passive obedience. In verse 19, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many are appointed righteous. Our salvation is by works, just not ours. It's by his works, it's by our surrender and bowing the knee in worship. How could I not? How could I not bow the knee to a God and a man like that? How could I not? We think that we're going to one-up Jesus' active and passive obedience. That's what those who say no thank you to Jesus are saying with their actions. It's not happening. Third, abounding grace. The abounding grace of justification. The abounding grace of justification, verse 20. The abounding grace of justification. Verse 20 is a wonderful summary and consequence of justification. Look at the verse there. Verse 20. Now the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Grace abounded all the more. This is, this is one of the verses that God used to save John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, the second most selling book in history next to the Bible. He wrote an autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's my life story, too. As he was a, he was a wretched man. The women of his village would say, if you don't shape up, you're going to end up like that dude, John Bunyan. And he heard the ladies talking to their kids about him that day, he overheard it, and he just fell down and was born again. Grace abounding. The, look at this verse, it's really interesting. The law came in so that sin would increase. What's the law? God's commandments. Love God above everything, no idols, don't carry in his name along with you in vain. Never murder anyone in your thoughts. Never adultery in your thoughts or in reality. Don't covet. That means constantly be thankful to God for everything. The law came in so that sin would increase. What's that saying? Is that saying that God's commands made people sin more? No, it's saying this. Illustration. It's saying, it'd be like if we said, X-rays and MRI machines came in so that broken bones, tumors, and tears would increase. Did the invention of X-rays and CT machines and MRI machines, did those cause more broken bones, more tumors, more torn ligaments? They did not. They only reveal what's there in truth. It exposes and makes known Recently, I, I had a little broken toe, hence my goofy boot I'm wearing here. And I knew that something was wrong. The toe was a little discolored, but it was straight. It looked fine. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if it's that bad. Well, I went in and got an x-ray, and it was like broken in half. It was like two toes. <laughs> the x-ray, the CT, the MRI, the whatever. That is helpful for us to see, though things at times may look okay externally. If you've had a collapse long before, you still look the same externally. But internally, it's bad. The law came in so that just in case people think, well, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm a decent guy. I'm pretty good. I've you know, never committed physical adultery, never murdered anyone. You're a murderer every day in your heart, my friend. And the law reveals that. It's like the x-ray, what's going on in the inside and our thoughts. It's, the, it's God's CT of the inner man. That's, that's what it means. The law came in so that sin would increase. However, verse 20, but where sin increased, and again, it's the awareness. This is what happens in every true believer, by the way. We, we, can't, we can't stutter on this point. Everybody who truly becomes a believer, saved, goes to heaven, is converted, has this Matthew 5, 3 to 4, this Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 and 4 point. This Luke 18, 13 moment in their life. This Isaiah 66, 2 moment in their life. Where they realize, I thought I was pretty decent before. My sins. I thought they were as high as like a little prairie dog mound of dirt they make when they dig under. I can just step on it and keep going. I thought that's kind of how my sins were. No, it's Himalayan in size. Without exception, 
This is where God brings every person to, or they are not saved. No matter how long they've warmed a pew, how many Sunday school classes they've been to, how many verses they've memorized, how long they've been a church member. The text. The text. Not man-centered, self-flattering, self-worshipping Christian culture is the authority on this, beloved. That our sins are Himalayan in view of God's standard of perfect holiness. Himalayan. If you're still walking around thinking you're a decent person, if I'm still walking around thinking that, I'm going to hell. I'm not saved. Not saved. But the good news at the end of verse 20, look there, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's, that's a great verse. There's a word in Greek for abounded. It's not used here. The Greek word abound, it means exceed. It's almost like Paul made up a word and says exceedingly exceeds. It means leftovers, but he says exceeding leftovers. Where your sin abounds and is high, grace exceedingly exceeds it all the more for those who put faith in Christ. That's the effect of justification. How can that be? How can his grace exceed your exceeding sin? Because it depends on the righteousness of Christ. And Christ's righteousness is far greater than your unrighteousness. What did they find on top of the Himalayas? What did they find there? On Mount Everest at 29,000. Anybody know? Seashells. Like clamshells and sand dollars. And conch shell. I don't know if they found a conch shell. It's a type of seashell. They found seashells. All over the Himalayans. When you're, when you're saved and you, you come to the light, John 3, 18, 19, 20, 21, you see your sins as Himalayans. Himalayan in size. Without which you're not a Christian. You're not. But the paradox of God's grace and conversion is you see your sins as Himalayan. And, and just as climbers have found seashells in the Himalayans, well, what does that mean? It means these peaks were underwater once. As high as those peaks are, there was a time when the ocean was above them. And as Himalayan as your sin is, there are seashells on top of the Himalayas. And the deluge of God's grace covers it and floods it. Because the grace of justification is greater than the Himalayan enormity of your sin and mine. I'm glad verse 20 doesn't say where God's grace abounds, our sin abounds all the more. the opposite. Like an unstoppable flood, God's grace covers them exceedingly in justification. And fourth and finally, briefly, verse 21. Grace abounded all the more so that, verse 21, as, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Number four, the certainty 
of eternal life from justification, the certainty of eternal life from justification. I mean, it ends perfectly, right? Eternal life, the great beyond, the certainty of eternal life because of justification. And, and you see uh, Paul, again, just a masterful teacher. He say, every, every verse starts with bad news, even so, or but good news. As sin reigned in death, if you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, death reigns over you no matter how great you feel about your life. It, it's, it's your master that rules over you. It's the hopelessness of it all. Take as much fish oil, use as much broccoli as you want. Death is your king. And it doesn't have to be that way. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The reign of death is the bad news, spiritual death separated from God. Only can sin, physical death. It's the end for those who reject Christ. There's no hope. It's total, utter hopelessness. And life for the not yet believer, tragically, as I was for 23 years, is just trying to scurry around and ignore this empire state building-sized pink elephant in the room. So it's what life is. There's no way around it. Trying to put a Band-Aid on Old Faithful Geyser. However, when we fall into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ, grace dethrones death. And grace, which, like the ocean, has covered the the highest peaks at one time. Grace renders death a revolving door into literal, conscious, eternal paradise. Hopelessness, therefore, for those in Christ can never actually ever be an objective reality again. If we are hopeless, we're living in a fictitious moment as a believer. Hopelessness is mythical. The fictitiousness of hopelessness for those who are justified by faith. That's the idea. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So friends, let everyone repent and trust God. Fall down on Jesus. I mean, maybe you've warmed a pew for longer than some of us have been alive, but you're seeing you're dead in sin. Your life hasn't changed. Your life hasn't changed one bit. That you've been kind of surfing the wave of your works, or grandma prayed for you when you were younger, or you attend a church, or you're a church member, or you've been baptized, you're surfing, maybe you're surfing all those waves. Those do nothing to save you and provide your greatest need, which is justification. Nothing. Nothing. Maybe you've seen that the sin in your life, maybe other people can't see it, but you see it. In your heart, is, it's, like en- it's like enslaved you. You're painted up good on the outside, but in, in the inside, you're a monster. And you've been wondering, why can't, why can't I turn a corner in that? Turn a corner today and cry out to God in your heart and declare to him that you've been condemned this whole time. You've been an Adam, that you're a sinner. And call on Christ 
to save you. And know that through him, not your works, grace abounds. And do not flatter yourself. Do not do and take that deathly suicidal step of trying to grab around a work or two here to flatter yourself in your heart. You're dead in sin. And Christ is such a loving Savior. Fall on him. And know that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Father in heaven, thank you for these summaries of justification. What great hope there is in him. What great hope there is for condemned, wretched, rebellious sinners like me and anyone who would call on the name of the Lord. Father, let all of us, like the tax collector, look to you as Luke 18, 13 says, he who he couldn't even lift his eyes to the temple, he understood the Himalayan enormity of his sin and say, God, be merciful to me, this sinner. And Jesus, you are and you will be. And we thank you that salvation, justification does not depend on the least bit on us, but on your passive obedience during which our sin is imputed to you and your active obedience from which your righteousness is imputed to us so that grace may abound and we may rest with the hope of eternal life. Let all of us trust in you, Jesus, and let us go forward this Christmas season just with a love and a concern for souls. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.